From WHYY and Billy Penn, this is your Thanksgiving edition of Hidden Season, a Philadelphia Phillies podcast. I'm Justin Clue, and I write for Baseball Prospectus and Billy Penn. With me today is my good friend Trevor Strunk, a former writer for Baseball Prospectus and SB Nation's Philly site, The Good Fight. Hello, Trevor. Hi, Justin. How are you? I am well. Thank you for asking. Uh, now, for those not in the know or who simply don't travel in the same elite circles as Trev and I. Uh, we host another Phillies podcast called The Dirty Inning, on which we tell stories about the dumbest, funniest, and most obscure innings in Philadelphia Phillies history. It's available on the Hidden Season Patreon at patreon.com slash season. And over 120 or so episodes through the years of The Dirty Inning, we've traveled as far back to the first game in franchise history in 1883, uh, we've related the events surrounding the infamous white flag game in 2015, as well as countless other stories in between from the 1800s, the 1900s, you know, current times. There's just there's a lot to pull from. We've really been at it for a while. Yeah, too long. Many have said <laughs> our families have said too too long. <laughs> have our faces been lit solely by the glow of a laptop screen as we scour newspaper archives for hidden details and forgotten Philly stories? And for the last seven years, we've been bringing you these stories from the unknown cor corners of the Phillies' uh, history, as well as any curious Philadelphia news of the time for added context. And we thought, what better time to waste some of your time than the Friday after Thanksgiving? So I'm so full today, Justin. <laughs> it's best to catch people with this podcast when they're at their most immobile and cannot escape. That's correct. Um, <laughs> oh, all that delicious turkey and uh it's stuffing right uh, justin what's your favorite uh, uh thanksgiving treat uh i'll tell you what i didn't have a brined turkey until last year Ooh, that's good and stuff. the difference was very apparent you know, oh yeah I'm, yeah yeah brine turkeys are that's a serious bird right yeah. there in general i'm not complaining about turkey at all but uh the difference was was clear and boy it was that was tender. That was very, very well done. Will so, you complain about it if you get it this year? A non-brine bird. <laughs> I mean, now I have the the bar has been set. So now I can complain nonstop from the moment I walk through the door. Which is kind of your deal. Right. Exactly. That's why this is why I'm on so many podcasts. <laughs> I got a lot of complaints. Uh, but yeah, we thought this would be a great time to share the dirty inning with you so you can you can lapse into your food coma, sort through the holiday decorations you just brought up from downstairs, curse inwardly at the amount of burnout bulbs on your lights, or outwardly, if, you know, you're that upset. you guzzling an energy drink outside a department store while the employees quiver and strap on helmets inside. Let us tell you a story during any of those events from Philly's history that's about a lot of the same things as Thanksgiving, Trev. Life, family, and wow. putting on your best jacket. Wait, excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> Do you wear a jacket to Thanksgiving? No, but some people might. Some people with class might. And that is where Thanksgiving and this story are going to overlap a little bit. Gosh, can't even <laughs> imagine it. Okay, well, I'm open to it. Uh, so what what Phillies season feels has the most Thanksgiving vibes? Where do you think we're going today? What what year do you think we're traveling to? The most Thanksgiving vibes? Um, I would say 1982. It's just past sort of the, the highs of summer um, being 1980, uh, but not quite in the doldrums of winter yet. And we still get a little treat 
around the corner Christmas in 1983. Although <laughs> maybe then it should have been 1978, but I'm guessing 1982. Wow, you really uh, you really thought about this. Well, yeah, we're it's a, it's a podcast. We have to be very serious. <laughs> yeah, uh, excellent answer. Completely wrong. Oh, okay. But, well, but you did have you know hundreds of possible responses. So I knew I would probably wrong. be wrong. I just wanted to be you know enthusiastically wrong. Now, instead of your well-thought-out and articulated response, we instead will be going to June 1951. Okay. So using your logic, this is kind of like after New Year's more so, because they had just gotten to their second World Series, lost, and were now in the beginning of not going back to the World Series for quite some time. Yeah, they're going to have to think about... uh their bad choices for a little bit, which is what I like to do after Thanksgiving. So that's all right. Yeah, that works. There you go. A living in regret uh, momentarily. (laughs) Oh, why'd I do this? As as you lose consciousness on the couch. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's apt still. Uh, But yeah, it was, it was June 1951 and the Keystone state was sizzling. (laughs) Oh, even the corridors of power were starting to sweat down in Washington, D.C. Oh, I, you were saying, I was like, what corridors of power were in Philadelphia? <laughs> <laughs> the no. William Penn statue? I set us in Pennsylvania and then immediately took us elsewhere. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Columnist Fred Othman was working with the beat, uh, working the beat in Washington, D.C., where President Truman had just returned from a five-day sojourn on his yacht, tailed by a second yacht full of reporters. Hmm. There was... There was work to be done now, though. The break was over, so it was time to get to it. No more yachting. But as usual, with Congress facing some important decisions to make, they had the typical U.S. government replies of, It's too hot, and (laughs) do we have to? (laughs) If eggs were so costly, I'd fry one out front, Othman wrote. Up in the air-conditioned precincts of Congress, the heat's on, too. A lot of the boys want to hurry with their work and go home for the rest of the year. Some want to stick around on account of maybe a war, or even a a peace. Either presents serious problems. (laughs) On account of maybe a war. (laughs) I love how in 1951 everyone, including Congress, has to sound like they're like a a newspaper boy or something. (laughs) Ah, shucks, I'm hanging around here, maybe for a war. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was like an almost Three Stooges line. Uh, it kind of reminded me of like a certain former president's speech patterns of like, uh, we will be here on account of maybe a war or even a peace. <laughs> <laughs> it did have that going for it, didn't it? <laughs> but nearby at a celebrity golf tournament, PGA champion Chandler Harper was reported to weaken under the heat and quit oh. with eight holes remaining, mm. leading Representative Leslin Ahrens, a Republican from Illinois, to win the day. Hey, but- hey, hey, Justin, check this out. It wasn't the only Harper to quit recently. Hey, uh, there's a little barb. I'm not. I'm not mad at Bryce Harper. I actually think he did a great job. <laughs> Let's really stick it to that franchise cornerstone. That... <laughs> yeah, who I who I actually have been steadfastly defending since they since they got since they lost, and everyone is wanting to uh, you know string him up. That huge centerpiece who basically had a like revealed he had superhuman powers by willing himself back to health faster than anyone ever had and then still went on to be did he win a silver slugger yeah he, he did won, as he a dh a yeah slugger. it's pretty impressive um <laughs> but you know according to people on the internet um that he's a fraud and so are the phillies so sure well 
In June 1951, <laughs> up in the Philadelphia area, a Conshohocken iron worker uh, was, he had just worked a full shift at the plant in the intense oh, heat. And then he came home where he barely had time to close his eyes before it was off to a parade he was obligated to participate in as a uh. member of the, of the volunteer firemen. He went out to buy himself a steak dinner afterwards and fell asleep in his chair for five hours in a restaurant, utterly unnoticed by other restaurant goers. Eventually, somebody poked him, and it was determined that he had uh, suffered from heat and overexertion that had oh, brought no. about his, his uh, involuntary snooze. Trev, oh, I thought you were going to say death. Nope, nope. He's oh, still phew. alive, just okay. very, very oh, tired. Boy. <laughs> now, Trev, how long do you feel you would last before you fell asleep in a chair if you had to work a full shift uh, as an iron worker, march in a parade, and then eat a full steak dinner? Oh, I would say a good uh, 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. I'm falling. You? I'm falling asleep in the middle of that steak. Honestly, like oh, that's yeah. that's not getting finished. That I, is, uh... I can't even imagine working a full shift as a steel worker in the middle of the like the worst heat wave my city's seen in a long time, and then someone's like, "Hey, don't forget, you have to be in that parade that you agreed to." <laughs> like, <laughs> you are absolutely wrong. I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. Yeah, I won't be doing that. Oh, don't forget, you have to go walk in a group in the heat outside, fully exposed. I'm single-handedly providing for this entire area. Uh, I'm not going to do that. And you have to do this because you are an unpaid fireman. That is why you have to do this. It is your job to rush into burning buildings for no money. You are making no money from this. Yeah, I, 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 I can't imagine being that person. I would have quit many things a long time before this story <laughs> happened. Uh, but don't, wrote Jane Leslie Kift in the Philadelphia Inquirer, don't let the heat and drought stop you from watering your gardens. Um, <laughs> in fact, hmm. you've really got to pour it on now more than ever, she wrote. <laughs> oh, no. First, the quantity of water is important. Gardens need at least an inch of water, and if this does not fall in rain, it must be applied with a hose. Never make it routine to sprinkle your garden, either the flower section or the vegetable patch, each day, but rather soak the ground to the depth of Ugh. six inches twice oh a week. God. That's that's one flooded garden right there. So, yeah, that's where all the water went. They used it in Philadelphia area <laughs> gardens in the 50s, and now we're going to have wars about it here in the 2020s. So thanks it's a fine. lot, Jane. It's fine. It's all... Thanks a, thanks a lot, Jane Leslie Kift. It's why everything grew so well afterward. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. It was hot, is what I'm saying. It was boiling hot in Philadelphia in June 1951. But fortunately, so were the Phillies. <gasps> You're kidding. Winners, winners of four games in a row, Trev. That's extremely hot for the Phillies. Yeah, that is that's it's honest it's honestly too much. It's a little too too much heat, I it's would say. It's freaking me out a little bit. If I'm a Phillies fan and this is happening, I'm starting to wonder where's my team? Where's the team that I know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would be I would start thinking like uh, an invasion of the body snatchers situation totally on the table. Yeah, Compl yeah. you know. The Fightins? Uh, suspicious would be the proper response to a win streak of that caliber for a, for a, a typical Phillies oh. team. Oh, from yeah. The, from the 20s to, honestly, probably closer to the 60s. Like, I know they got better, but they were still capable of disaster. Oh, absolutely. No one's trusting those Phillies. Um, wow. Okay. Great. Good, good for them. Now, sure, they just lost five in a row the week before, but hey, wins! 
The Phillies <laughs> walloped the Cardinals on June 1st with Andy Semenik getting three knocks and Jocko Thompson throwing eight innings and hitting a triple. Oh, good for him. The next day, they did it to them again with starter Ken Weitzelman shutting out the Cardinals for eight innings as his offense could build a lead with RBI groundouts and run scoring errors and sacrifice flies. You know, the signs of a high functioning offense. <laughs> we, we love we love our random triples and sack flies. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't until the seventh inning that the Phillies knocked in a run on a base hit, but they won five to two. Oh. Even the even the fans were at their best that day, with nobody being stabbed until after the game. <laughs> well, that's just lazy work. I mean, <laughs> Come on, people. It's you like gotta wait till even... after the game to get stabbed? Give me a break. What's happening to this city? Unbelievable. <laughs> well, a group from a home for retired Navy veterans had attended the contest at Scheib Park. One 63-year-old said he was waiting for the bus home with the rest of his group when he got into an argument with one of the other guys from the uh, Navy veterans' home. It according to, according to the Inquirer, he knew him only as Gibson. Well, old Gibson whipped out a penknife and put it in the guy's chest. Oh, no. That's <laughs> he not reco- good. <laughs> he recovered at Temple University Hospital and then refused to press charges against the man who, again, stabbed him and who he apparently, presumably, lived in the same facility with at 24th and Grace Ferry, and who had, again, stabbed him in the chest at a bus stop. I feel like maybe these guys were, like, roommates or something. Like, Mm -hmm. is there a possibility that we're in a situation where, like, it would have been really awkward uh, to have to deal with Gibson afterwards? Like, maybe they see a lot of each other. Yeah, they just bump into each other in the food line. He's like, oh, God, that's the guy who stabbed me last week. If Uh, I press charges, it's going to be insufferable. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. You got to think about the inner politics of life in a home like that, especially after you've been stabbed. I mean, (laughs) yeah, I mean, clearly Gibson's not thinking about it. He doesn't care. They brought a bunch of like bored older guys to a sporting event in Philadelphia. I mean, they're lucky it was just a penknife. <laughs> what did they expect to happen? <laughs> uh, you know what? He pulls out a, a chainsaw. He was keeping down his pant leg. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were rolling now, those Phillies, as the Pirates came to town. Uh, the, don't, dro- don't droop, said one ad, featuring an illustration of a woman sweating profusely or perhaps sobbing uncontrollably. <laughs> Have fun! See the Phillies play Pittsburgh today at Scheib Park. Don't, don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> <laughs> they were playing two games on June 3rd, and the Phillies crushed the Buckos 11-2 in Game 1. Del I mean, Enos thank and- goodness. Really, <laughs> <laughs> hold on to that dignity. It's, it's good to see. <laughs> Uh, Del Enos and Dick Sizzler each had three hits, with Sizzler coming a homer shy of the cycle. Third baseman Willie Jones walloped one in the fourth for the Phil's only round tripper of the day, but that was more than enough to put the to, to gut the Pirates with Robin Roberts on the mound. Huh. They didn't let up in game two either, smashing the Pirates 8-3 to three that time. It was Richie Ashburn's turn to go off with three trips to the plate, and they got three homers as well from Enos, Semenik, and Granny Hamner. This time, it was Bubba Church who went the distance on the mound. Don't look now, but these Phils are on a hot streak, Trev, unlike those clowns in Congress. Yeah, they're on a cold streak because they want to be on vacation in, where's a cold place in America? Uh, Wisconsin. There you go. Yeah, I got it. (laughs) Found one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they, they they were out, the president was out on a yacht trip, and then everybody went back to work, and they were like, what? When can we go on vacation? I'm going to go on vacation like the president did. (laughs) 
The Phillies, despite their recent success, were said to be backsliding straight out of playoff contention. Oh, wait, wait why? This is quite the trick to pull off, considering it was early June, remember. <laughs> so, nevertheless, they were still marketable as the defending National League champions, remember. Of course. And merchandisers were trying to squeeze whatever pennies they could out of these guys on the 1951 Phils before they turned back into a normal Phillies team. <laughs> take, for example, take, <laughs> take, for instance, the Eddie Watkiss jacket. The Phillies' star first baseman had his own outer garment for sale at the Ward & Ward department store, said to be, quote, tailored to perfection in Dan River fabric with durable water-repellent finish remains after washings or dry cleanings, comes in red, navy, tan, gray, or green, small, medium, or large, and you get a free picture of Eddie himself with your purchase. Wow! I'll put it in my breast pocket and tell the boys that I have it because I respect him so much. <laughs> what happened to this country, Trev? <laughs> when did you stop getting a glossy 8x10 of your favorite <laughs> fill anytime you bought a new jacket, cloak, or cape? <laughs> just go into the store and people give me like a, they're just running out. They're like, I got a Johan Rojas. You like that guy? <laughs> yeah, I know. He's, he's nice. All right. Cool. What are the others? Ah. <laughs> uh. Well, we used to we used to be a society. Well, the normal Phillies were on their way. Don't you worry, Trev. After a certain amount of wins, no matter how good a team looks, you just wind up waiting for the loss because it's inevitable. And the Phillies didn't have to wait much longer because on June fourth, nineteen fifty one, the Pirates gave them one. How though? Given the Phillies' hot bats, the Pirates looking dead in the water, and the heat hitting a stifling 82 degrees. Oh, the... wait. You said it was a heat wave. You didn't say it was, like, the heat wave. 82! <laughs> this was basically prehistoric Earth temperatures for the 1950s. <laughs> so funny how bad we're getting. <laughs> the Pirates would need a little extra gas to beat these hot, hot fills. <laughs> That'll help the global warming. Or maybe... They just needed a little extra Gus? What? Now, what does that mean? You haven't explained what that means, Justin. We Justin, what's a little Gus? Nope, that's not a phrase anyone uses. His you name want to edit that out. was Gus Bell. Hmm. He was born on the Feast of St. Albert the Great in 1928. I have to tell you, as a child who grew up Catholic, you hear an awful lot about feast days, and a very disappointing number of them are actual feasts like you get these calendars oh, yeah. on which a seemingly endless number of feast days are marked the feast day of this guy the feast day of this event feast of the things that happened on this day and you come downstairs on these days and each time you realize oh i guess we're not doing like a whole thanksgiving situation <laughs> the feast is leftovers <laughs> yeah, like even though the calendar said it was a feast day that was one i yeah i had to just figure that out on my own That's did you get to eat on the feast of saint justin no, yeah, they don't even do that. Where they mm. sync it up with your name. Yeah, That's rough. Yeah, yeah it is. It's, it's, it's a tease, I will say. You can't say the word feast that much, and then there is just, you know, it's always <laughs> it's figurative. Like two. Always figurative. Like, uh, get out of here. Anyway, St. Albert was the patron saint of all who cultivate the natural sciences, so the Phillies of today would have hated him. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, he now shared his feast day with Gus Bell, a Pirates player who was born in Kentucky, and attended school there under the tutelage of nuns. Oh, Be wow. Bell, 
Bell learned ball on the sandlots of Louisville, Kentucky, and eventually his education moved from nuns to Xavierian brothers, who began coaching him to be the strong-armed outfielder with a keen sense for tracking a fly ball that he would be when the Pirates would come calling. It was on those high school fields that he earned his nickname Gus, referencing veteran catcher Gus Mancuso of the Giants and Cubs, who had been his favorite player. Mm. This was a simple and more kindly way to attain a nickname than you typically hear from ballplayers of this era. Usually, usually it's like, well, he got mustard gassed in World War I, so we call him Gassy. Or occasionally <laughs> Melted Brain Jackson or something. This like, is a much nicer, yeah, this is a nicer one. It's not, not like... Um can't hit jones or like <laughs> yeah right weak knees williams like, yeah, yeah. Big, dumb, big dumb fatty johnson yeah that's <laughs> it's all over baseball they had to be nice because after being taught by like um you know uh sister agnes to play baseball they knew that uh it would be a real problem if they insulted her work <laughs> Uh, but yeah, when they were like, uh, Gus was his nickname. I was like, oh boy, what did he like? Did he like kill, kill a guy named Gus or something? I go, oh boy. But nope, nope. Perfectly innocent. Just uh, He liked nickname. a player named Gus. <laughs> yep. Same player. Just an idol of his on the ball field. Moving along. So Bell married his wife, Joyce, uh, with both of them being described as charmers by a reporter who was granted an exclusive interview with the two of them. In it, Joyce comes across like a real 1950s firecracker, and frankly, I love her. This, <laughs> this appeared in the Catholic newspaper called The Tablet in 1951 from a writer named Jack Butler. Gus and his pretty wife Joyce, who is traveling around the National League circuit with him on a vacation, entertained us in their New York hotel room. He's a charmer, Joyce too, clean cut, and a very nice person to talk to. You're going to have trouble with Gus, volunteered Joyce. He doesn't tell me much about himself. I get all the information from his mother. I love baseball and see most of the games at home with our one-year-old daughter, Deborah. We asked how his daughter's name was spelled. He hesitated in the middle, and Joyce remarked, Oh, nice, Daddy. Not sure of the spelling of his own daughter's name. <laughs> boy, oh boy. This lady, got him. This lady takes no guff. <laughs> the Pirates scouted and signed Bell right out of high school and sent him to the lower minors for two years. But he played his way right out of there and up to Indianapolis, the Pirates' highest farm team, where he continued to mash. He was hitting 405 for Indianapolis when the Pirates called him up around Memorial Day in 1950. He knocked in 74 runs despite starting the season in late May, and as the years went by, he became a reliably around 300 hitter in the majors hmm. and a, quote, prodigious extra base hitter. Wow. Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh's architect, a guy named Branch Rickey, <gasps> I've heard of him, moved Bell into his roster plans for the near future. Bell thanked him by hitting a home run at the Polo Grounds in 1950 off Sal Magley, who was in the middle of throwing 44 straight scoreless innings until oh. Gus Bell crushed one off him. Wow, that's close yeah. to the record. Good that's, Lord. Yeah, that's that's a fun one to, to bust up with a home run. Oh, yeah, say. you gotta, I mean, like... As a hitter, the, the it's just so juicy. You get to watch. I feel like the 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 thing that um, the thing that Jeff Hoffman had on his on his glove this year, the uh, F all hitters thing, mm -hmm. um, really indicates the 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 style of hatred between <laughs> offense and defense that the probably disdain. still reigns. Yeah, 
hitters hate pitchers and pitchers hate hitters. And it's important <laughs> that we remember that. Like cats and dogs. <laughs> it's, it's time to bring back the hate in baseball, you know? Yeah. I really do. I really wish we could live in an era again where the National and American Leagues, like, hate each other. I, 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 I still, like, have not found the reason why that was... Like, there's some historic, I think, like, labor stuff that, that caused uh, an actual disdain between the two circuits. But then, like, that eventually just kind of went away. Yeah, I we don't even care about the other one now. Yeah. And it's they all intermingle all season long. So, you know, it's not even like there's a huge difference, especially with the Universal DH. So, yeah, I wish we could get back to that. But by the time Gus Bell was playing against the Phillies on June 4th, 1951, he was 22 years old and considered a fixture in the Pirates' outfield for years to come. And unlike times I've read such sentiments about young Phillies players from these eras, I don't need to add a somber epilogue to that statement about his career ended when he fell down all the time when he swung or got sucked (laughs) into a wheat thresher. (laughs) Bell was just good, and he did play for the Pirates for a few years before going to Cincinnati for nine seasons and spent time with the Mets and Braves near the end of his career as well. Wow. Meanwhile. I like that. The Phillies were riding that four-game hot streak I mentioned to start the month of June after a not-so-hot couple months before that. But after winning the 1950 pennant with the WizKids and playing in the World Series, they had made themselves a part of the local Philadelphia culture so that every detail of the players' personal lives was now consumable content as the team seemed to find its way into more and more people's interests. So tough. I mean, mean, you recognize this. This This is your life as a... As a star, um, people yeah. just know what you're doing. They follow your family around. Oh, all the time. It's tough. I mean, it's it's really it's a shame for you personally. Right. They show up at, at your house. You know, they just they want they want tips on how to be a great prolific podcaster, and you know, you just get sick of lying to people. Just so you just, you're so handsome. Then you're like, uh, I, uh, I don't know, but get away from me. You. <laughs> Uh, it's the people we do this for, you know, it's the people. Uh, anyway, yeah, the Phillies were entering the local culture and becoming a fixture. Pitcher Kurt Simmons, currently not with the Phillies, but on 10-day leave from the Army, had just gotten himself engaged to what the Inquirer called an upstate girl. Now, you know what that means. Uh, she's got she's got a cabin and several winter coats. I was going to say, is she moving back from uh, the big city into her little hometown and finding love when she least expected it? Yeah, and, you know, there's a ticking clock on it because he's got to go back to the army, but he just happens to be in town. And wouldn't you know it, they went, they went, they were going to go to an eighth grade dance together, but then he never showed because he had a ball game. Uh-oh, her fiance's in town. <laughs> <laughs> He's he's from the big city too. He is. It's yeah. time to time to make a choice, Brenda. Is it? <laughs> I never thought I'd be back in my hometown of <laughs> the mountains. <laughs> uh, just just to clarify, only the part about <laughs> the Inquirer calling her an upstate girl. The rest of the, yeah, the rest of it was not was uh, from uh, me and Justin's original Hallmark movie that we're working yes. on. Correct, a whole new ball game. It's called. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but even the bringing up baby columnists in Philadelphia were encouraging you to go down and catch a game. Is the daddy at your house a Phillies fan? One writer asked. Join him tonight. Have a great evening at Scheib Park. See the Phillies play the St. Louis Cardinals. Get a sitter now. 
Pick out your best-looking cotton and have fun tonight at 8. What? Okay. That's, I feel like, a normal way to say pick out a fun outfit. Pick out your best-looking cotton, Trev. Get your daddy to the park with your (laughs) best-looking cotton. (laughs) Well, they were also referenced in a feature written by a woman giving advice to other women about the various personalities they'll run into when they're being interviewed for potential jobs. Hmm. Yeah, it's important now that these ladies are out getting jobs. and ugh. This is, yeah, this is one of the types of interviewers you could meet. The boyish type is always a delight. His desk is a hopeless state of confusion. The waste paper basket is surrounded by wads of paper that just missed their mark. And on the wall behind him is a picture of the fighting fillies. He will offer you a cigarette, slouch down on the base of his spine, and throw one leg over the arm of the chair. By the time you leave, you will have compared alma maters, analyzed Blondie and Dagwood, and swapped jokes. You'll what? like this type, even if he doesn't hire you. What? what? That so- <laughs> sounds like a heck of a job interview. <laughs> Just, I, love, I love the idea of slinging his leg up over this. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, it sounds like he's tied himself into a human pretzel. <laughs> in, like, behind, yeah, like Asking you about your resume as like he's putting both legs behind his head and lighting a cigarette in his mouth. What a right, nightmare how, interview. Well, how about them fills? Am I right? <laughs> Did you read Dagwood? I love that guy. <laughs> Did you catch this morning's Dagwood? Oh, cream cheese. That was a sizzler. <laughs> if a job interview ever discussed a Sunday funny with me, I'd call the police. Like, I... <laughs> The 1951 Phillies were so addictive, their regular season games so captivating, that you might not even realize that your life is in danger. (laughs) Here's a story. Okay. (laughs) Here's a story about a father and son from a Philadelphia suburb who were so into a Phillies game, they did not even realize they were about to die. This is from the Philadelphia Inquirer. This is a great story already. I like it. Edward J. Tierney Jr. of Elkins Park and his son Aloysius were so engrossed in listening to the radio details of the Phillies-Cubs game last night that they didn't notice the smoke from a fire that filled the living room where they were sitting. As flames licked up a partition between the dining room and living room, father and son continued to listen to the ball game. Partition means wall, right? So yeah. like, the wall of the room they were in was on fire. Wow. That's, um... Hang on, there's more. The (laughs) Phillies were in the midst of a futile ninth-inning rally when Tierney's wife, Clara, asleep in a second-floor bedroom, (laughs) was awakened by the smoke. Her shouts tore the father and son away from the radio. Engine companies from McKinley and Abington extinguished the flames, which caused several hundred dollars worth of damage, according to Tierney. The Phillies lost three to two. (laughs) Hey! Hey, the house is on fire! Shush! Phil's are about to lose. A lot of incredible things here. Incredible that an awake father and son did nothing to detect a literal fire in their house, but the sleeping mother, a floor above, was right on top of it. Women hold up half the sky, Justin. It's, It's just, it's the truth. And I also love that they bothered to include the Phillies score in the account that almost cost these men their lives. I mean, baseball, it'll get you killed. And if there's any game worth dying of smoke inhalation, it's a regular season June game between the Phillies and Cubs. Yeah, when when <laughs> you basically can pencil into your calendar, one of those games is Phillies lose 5-2. to two. <laughs> I feel like, <laughs> like it's, it's absolutely... <laughs> it's, it's just, you, you may as well just... 
assume that and to almost die for that is is fantastic <laughs> what a what a what a great choice well it sure is getting foggy in here <laughs> you mean in our living room yeah Woo. yeah it sure is well anyway fills her up <laughs> wonder why it's so foggy <laughs> the city's a mess is your mother shouting i i can you can't make out what she's saying. Yeah, forget it. Yeah, just turn turn the radio up. <laughs> We've all been there. We've all been lost in Scott Fransky's uh, mellifluous tones uh, <laughs> enough that we uh, put our entire family at risk. Well, if only they could have been warned by someone who knew the future. And fortunately, fortunately for them, <laughs> those people were <laughs> were on their way to Philadelphia. A pair of women who had claimed to be fortune tellers had escaped from New York once they'd been busted. As, as frauds and headed south, they were said to be a mother and daughter team who'd fled town in two separate vehicles, along with the rest of their family. Philadelphia detectives had now joined the search for Madam Edith and Madam Elsie, according to the Inquirer, after they'd flim-flammed somebody out of $5,000. Trev, is flim-flammed still a legal term? Is that its own branch of the, of <laughs> yeah, the crime if, tree? If you flim-flam, it's, it's considered uh, a, uh, a, they call it in as a code uh, 808. Um, we got a flim flam down on it. <laughs> right on my way. <laughs> Hang well, on, Philadelphia- kid. It's going to get hairy. Philadelphia detectives were having a busy couple of days. They busted into the cottage inn at Trenton and Sargent Street and arrested 16 drinkers, well-wishers, and good time-havers for violating the Pennsylvania Liquor Control Act or for disorderly conduct, depending on if they were the owner, bartender, or just a customer. What was the Liquor Control Act, I wonder? It's like, it's, it's such a... It, it we're we're past um prohibition so it's such a weird thing to have to be like yeah we still can't drink like you want to sorry about maybe, that maybe it was like drinking before noon on a sunday or stuff like yeah, that. yeah that would make sense i guess like that's sort of how those things work i mean they were going door to door they they then knocked on the door of a vfw at the railroad employees post 481 and cuffed a bunch of people in there too cuffed a bunch of veterans they seized 65 beers two gallons of wine seven bottles of whiskey and then did everybody a solid by having their names and occupations published in the newspaper i hope they drank all that alcohol I feel like I'm repeating myself, but where have we gone as a society when you can be sitting on a bar stool inside a drinking establishment with fewer than 20 other people around and you can still be hauled in for disorderly conduct with anybody without anybody even calling the police? I feel like I feel like this is something that would not happen today. I feel like you can be disorderly, uh, you know, when you want to. I mean, now. They've replaced like they have so many like speed trap cameras out there. It's it's you know they won't even they won't even stop you for breaking the law in front of a police car or something. It's like, oh yeah, yeah they, let, they have their let income the set. It. <laughs> Don't worry now, about it. I'll catch you when you speed next time. Now the drunk guy who was arrested at Broad and Tasker who bit a policeman on the leg and tried to choke another one. That's a lot more disorderly. Ah, dog man. But despite all the ongoing police work across the city, the Inquirer couldn't help but shame them, saying Inspector John Murphy should caution those vice squad members about their strong-arm tactics, wrote columnist Frank Brookhauser. They don't have to act like smart Alex stormtroopers just because they're on the squad. Murphy is a gentleman. His men should be, too. Did they, did they hassle this newspaper? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what a strange thing for a newspaper man to write. Like, 
I, I feel like cops today aren't very polite. Oh, <laughs> a weird thing to say for you. <laughs> Besides, the police should have been focusing on actual mysteries, like how an old man wearing a diamond-studded Masonic charm died while walking near his home on 50th Street. His son employed private investigators when it was discovered that the charm was not among the dead man's personal effects. And the, po- the police said they didn't know anything about it. Or how about the stolen car found at Ninth and Vine with its trunk full of biscuits and peanut butter and cornmeal, all of which was found to be riddled with rat poison? Where is the diamond charm? Where did it disappear between the man dying on the street and the authorities coming? The man wasn't said to be killed by anyone else, so it had would have had to have been a passerby or someone who showed up after he was dead. Were the poison groceries in the car when it was stolen, or did the thief put them in there after they took it off the lot at Front and Cortland? These are the questions we need answered. Not, hey, what's that guy in that bar doing? We know what he's doing. Let him keep doing it and get on this Agatha Christie mystery unfolding on the streets of your city. I really, I also appreciate uh, that the police then uh, discovered that that trunk was that trunk was not just full of biscuits and stuff, but also uh, Masonic symbols uh, <laughs> stolen <laughs> from <laughs> dead men. Clearly, these things are unrelated. All Interesting. Right, I'll, <laughs> yeah, hand me one of those sixty-five beers we have now. <laughs> well, anyway, let's go to the Phillies game. Okay. <laughs> An impressive 2,300 people came out to Scheib Park to see the Phillies play the Pirates on June 4th, 1951. The Buckos had lost eight in a row leading into this contest, mm. including yesterday when the Phillies swept them in that doubleheader I mentioned. But as the two bottom teams in the National League right now, it simply wasn't much of a draw. Not with such far more intriguing stories popping up around town. Do you want to track down the 50th Street Diamond Thief who incurred the wrath of the Masons? Or do you want to see if the 7th place Phillies can win five in a row? <laughs> sounds like It sounds like some question someone would ask me in 2012. Like, <laughs> would you like to figure out the murder of the, of <laughs> the locked room in the Taj Mahal? Or do yeah. you want to see... Uh, God, I'm trying to think of a 2012 Philly... Uh, injured uh, Roy Halladay pitch. Delman Young. Delman Young it? pitch. <laughs> I know he didn't pitch, folks. It's... Juan Pierre. That's a 2012 Philly. <laughs> he also pitched, I believe, in a blowout. So that that's especially good. <laughs> well, the Phillies sent Russ Mayer to the mound, and it was apparent very quick that everyone's attention would be better off focused on something like, "Hey, are your groceries poisoned?" That's the last time I'll mention it, I swear. But honestly, I mean, focus not even on the local crime, but on anything else rather than the Phillies. Just like your groceries poison. Is there a fire happening in your house? They might have been preferable to just watch a bird fly overhead than to watch the Phillies in this game. Of course, by looking up, you might have seen some more of the batted balls Mayer allowed in the first two innings that were struck by the Pirates, in in, in which even the outs were long fly balls. There were two men on and two outs when Gus Bell came to the plate and tripled both runners home for the Pirates. It was June, and he had his first triple of the season. And much like that other stat I mentioned, uh, like his RBI total uh, was uh, su- it rose surprisingly fast for a guy who didn't even start playing until late May. Yeah. He had his first triple of the season in June, and despite not hitting one for the first two months of the season, Gus Bell would go on to lead the league in triples that year with 12 of them. Wow. According to, according to Mike Huber's bio on Bell for the Society of American Baseball Research. 
Mayer faced four more batters in the third, all of them getting a hit or knocking in a run. He was removed when Wally Westlake hit a two-run home run off him, thanks to Gus Bell singling his way on base previously to make it five to nothing. Hmm. The lineup came back around to Gus Bell in the fifth, and he opened the frame by homering off Phillies reliever Milo Candini. Bob Friend, the rookie starter for the Pirates, who was pitching in his third game ever, naturally had held the National League champion Phillies to the minimum number of batters. Bob Friend was a pretty good pitcher, right? Or am I? Yes. Okay, okay, okay. I was like, that sounds like someone I know. (laughs) Yeah, he certainly was. But again, this was his third start in the major leagues, so they didn't know he was Bob Friend yet. (laughs) You guys are... You guys are playing like you know this guy is Bob Friend. <laughs> Trust us, this guy's going to be good someday. Okay, but like <laughs> that doesn't make me feel any better. I got to tell you. <laughs> it was 6 to nothing now and the Pirates, who were terrible, could have just cruised to the ninth, but Gus Bell kept at it, crushing a two-out double off the Phillies in the 7th. Stat patter. The Phillies tried to make it look like they were going to make the Buccos pay for stranding Bell at second that inning by actually doing an impression of a ball team. <laughs> w- Willie Jones led off with a single, and Granny Hamner hit a two-run homer to lessen the deficit in the bottom of the inning. With two runners on, Eddie Watkiss, yes, the Eddie Watkiss. Unbelievable. We talked about him in a previous episode. Whose picture every man in a fine-looking jacket had at home, knocked it a run with a single as well. This cut the Pirates' lead in half, and the Phillies, a team expected to hit better and win more games like this, seemed to be on the comeback trail. But no, <laughs> they were pretty much done scoring for the day. That's not the, the If you were expecting that, um, I have to redirect you to Justin's intro to the show. <laughs> New listeners may be surprised by this turn of events. <laughs> yeah, you're listening to the show wrong. I, I, I can't believe I have to say that. Uh, but yeah. But Bob Miller came in to pitch for the Phillies now and made all three of their hard-earned runs totally worthless. <laughs> with, two, with two outs, Bob Miller allowed a pair of singles, one of which included an error on Del Enos. He walked the next batter, who was George Metkovich, a guy who had been 0 for his last 23 entering the game. So obviously you got to keep the ball out of the strike zone against him. And with the bases loaded, a triple cleared them. And Miller allowed a single walk and single to make it 11 11 to 3. Gus Bell was the walk in that scenario. Yikes. Now, the reason I keep bringing him up, and, you know, if you're playing at home, you might be thinking, wow, Gus Bell had a great day at the plate. But he did hit for the cycle, which you may have missed. Oh, I did, because I was just listening to all the various times he was brutalizing the Phillies. Yeah, and that's totally understandable, given the lack of meaning interest and well-played baseball this game had and that really counted for something I, I i wonder is there a name for a cycle in which you also draw a walk like that feels like a even wider cycle i feel like you, they should call that like like they call the uh the the no hitters under like nine under 100 pitches and maddox or yeah maybe yeah. that's a complete game under 90 i can't remember but like they should call it like a cust like, like a Jack Cust or something. Like <laughs> someone who walked a lot. <laughs> I mean, that that just seems like you, you, not only did you get every possible kind of hit, you also got on base. One of the, but the, I know there's like I forget how exactly many ways there are to get to first base. There's like you know, it's a good trivia question. An, like, oh, okay. Let's let's think. There's an error. There's a 
hit batsmen. You can't get there by a bulk, right? That that doesn't you that, cannot that, get that there moves by a bulk, people no. along. It doesn't get them to first base. It's a walk, hit batsman, dropped third strike. Right. Uh, what did you say? Uh, 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 I, I think I said those. And then there's oh, okay. then there's also uh, an error. Right, an error. That's four. Uh, Catcher's interference. I mean, I guess do we count a hit just in general? Yeah, you got to count a hit. Like you can't. You, I, I think. I think saying like triple, double, single. Like that's kind of. It's kind of silly. That's, that's six. I guess a question is. Um, what if you are inserted into the like you didn't have the at bat? Oh, that's an interesting. <laughs> a pinch runner. Yeah, yeah. That's a fun one. I like that. I kind of. This is pretty fun. Let's see. I will. I'm, I'm going to look it up right now. Um, Looks like there's eight ways a batter can reach first base. How many do we say? Six. I think we got to eight. Let's see. Let's see. We got to. Um, oh, there are seven ways to reach first base according okay. to Saber. Um, and then there's eight on blogger.com. So you have to, you're going to trust, who are you going to trust? Uh, <laughs> well, the society dedicated for the research and information providing of the sport of baseball or this guy's website. <laughs> Tor- Toronto Mike says there's 23 ways to get to first base. Including Toronto Mike four- said that? <laughs> including... Four illegal pitches and Gabe suspended with runner on first. That player is traded prior to the makeup. No, new player. no, no, no. That's, that's, pretty, that's, that's very funny, though. Uh, the definitive answer is hit, walk, error, fielder's choice. Oh, we didn't say fielder's choice. Hit by pitch, oh. drop, third strike, and defensive interference. Okay, so there's so there are eight. Yeah. No, no, seven. Okay. That's seven. The the, oh, eighth yeah, the list one, I'm looking at includes fielder's interference, but that's yeah, they not... just call it defensive interference. I think for Saber, which okay. I think is like the same thing as saying yeah, we're just going to call it all a hit. So you would have to be playing in the longest baseball game of all time, but if you could reach base in each of those ways and ha- hit single, double, triple, home run, that is truly a cycle. I would say. Can you imagine how cool it would be to play in the longest baseball game of all time? Uh, yeah, I'm sure cool is the word that <laughs> writers and fans would use to describe sitting around in the longest <laughs> baseball game of all time. Did you ever read the Iowa Baseball Confederacy? Because that's, no. that's what it's about. Yeah. It's the, it's the, it's W.P. Kinsella, I think, or his initial. It's the same guy who wrote Field of Dreams. Okay. And, uh, it, yeah, it really, it's just another, like, bizarre fantasy story about two guys that go back in time in Iowa <laughs> and they, like, wind up coaxing i guess the cubs to come to iowa and play a game and and the game just goes on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever to the point that like the commissioner is like the cubs have to come back and play their regular season games and they're like no we have to finish this game you're like, I, like what am i reading like what is this I, I really i really love the like the the idea of like what if a game never ended. <laughs> it's like how, how my, my daughter was, was learning a little bit more about baseball and, and she, she just kept asking me, she was like, okay, so like, what if a team won all the games, like all of their games? <laughs> I was like, they, they can't do that. It's not, not something that could happen. She's like, but theoretically it could. I was like, no, not even theoretically. <laughs> There's no way it could happen. Don't worry about it. Uh, well, I think there should be a name for a cycle where you also draw a walk. I, I do you too. Should get, you should get your own little bonus. Listeners, send us your emails at. Yes. Well, if you know how to reach us, 
use those methods. Uh, now, there's got to be even, it's got to be even less common, obviously, than uh, than than what we call a cycle now. And yeah, you know, it's, it's it's the uncommonality of it at least makes it a significant event. Even though a four-hit game is obviously great and kind of rare, but a cycle I think relies a lot on luck, as in the difference between hitting two doubles or a double and a triple. Oh, absolutely. Might just be, where a ball caroms off the wall, which obviously has nothing to do with a hitter's skill. But in any case, Gus Bell had done it. The <laughs> Pirates had ended their losing streak, winning for the second time in 16 games. According to his Sabre bio, Bell was the only hitter to hit for the cycle in 1951 after it had happened four times the year before. Yeah. It wouldn't happen again until literally one calendar year in the future on June 4th, 1952. <laughs> When Larry Dobby did it for the did it for Cleveland against the and, Phillies, and it would <laughs> be thirteen it would be thirteen seasons before another Pirate did it, uh, and that time it would be Willie Stargell. Bell would, was the seventeenth ever to do it for the Pittsburgh Pirates organization. Now here's the twist: you may be thinking hitting for the cycle with the Phillies nearby. And a guy named Bell did it? <laughs> Haven't I heard this story before? And yes, you have. Until JT Real Muto hit for the cycle on June 13th, the, the last Phillies player to hit for the cycle was David Bell, which was basically the entirety of David Bell's Phillies legacy. It's the <laughs> only thing anybody remembers about him. So yep. he, he did it in 2004 against the Expos. And unlike Gus, he hit the triple last. Oh, it that's bounced, exciting, yeah. It bounced off the top of the wall in right center, and even Harry Callis was pretty sure it was a home run. But it stayed a triple, and David Bell's legacy remained intact. I'm sure his grandfather, Gus, <gasps> was proud. No, that's, no, that's you can't right. do this to me. <laughs> that's right. I pulled the rug out from under you. Oh, my goodness. I didn't think... I think David Bell just was uh, materialized out of disappointment. Now you're telling me he has a grandfather. <laughs> He's got a whole family lineage and everything. Oh my goodness! This shows completely the shark. Throws my sense of reality totally out of alignment. Uh, yeah, as you may have guessed, Gus and David Bell remain the only grandfather grandson duo to both hit for the cycle in a major league baseball. I did game. guess that. Yeah. Yeah, you, can, you can imagine that there's not not too many of those combos. Uh, I did not look up. I feel like he didn't, but I did not look up if David Bell had a walk in his cycle game. So I feel like that That's would a good be, question. If he did, that would be an even crazier coincidence. He probably didn't. Let's find but, out. Yeah. Uh, David Bell today and today and. Yeah, so today in Philly sports history, David Bell hits for cycle. Uh, he just went four for four with six RBI. So yeah, no, no, um, no, no walk. walks, no, no cussed or whatever we're calling. No, this. he didn't yeah. get a cussed. <laughs> which is which is good. Honestly, it sounds like a like a medical problem. So I'm glad. <laughs> oh my cussed! <laughs> <laughs> well, on the YouTube video of David Bell's cycle. Someone comments uh, beneath that no Philly has hit for the cycle since. And then, yes, years later, more than one person returned to that comment section this past June to inform that commenter that, in fact, JT Real Muto had made him incorrect. <laughs> yeah, idiot. Why don't you, why don't you like, see into the future like us? 
I love that. It's like uh, when you see a response, of, like on a bathroom wall or something. Like, <laughs> someone come, someone come back to like have an exchange about this. Those like, are actually my it? favorites. I love, I love when people, I love when people just like say mean things back to the bathroom wall writer. <laughs> like, it's what you deserved for expressing yourself in this room, in this particular way that you have. What a terrible idea. Well, Trev, given the story we just heard, what family member, uh, living or dead, do you feel you'd have the best shot at reaching a tandem athletic milestone with? Oh, like boy. Like Gus and David Bell. Um, probably my... Uh, <laughs> here's a return of a favorite of a favorite podcast character. Uh, probably my grandfather, uh, old Swivel Hip Strunk himself. Oh, I forgot about Swivel Hips. Yeah, Swivel Hip Strunk. I don't know if he was good at baseball. I don't know. But he... I will say he kind of have had the uh, the um, baseball frame because he was like he he's like me he has like short stubby legs and a big torso which I feel somewhat plays in baseball. Um, I don't know. I feel like he's the he's the best though. He's definitely the one I'm I'm most likely to. I am one million percent the uh, weak link in that in that <laughs> equation though. <laughs> like it's it's really it's really, you know, like they are they are carrying me all the way to the finish line in terms of hitting a home run or any hit in baseball. <laughs> for anyone who might be listening to this podcast for the first time, uh can you give us a Ah, yeah. Uh so my uh, my my grandfather Blaine Strunk uh played um uh, football in uh, in Penn Argyle, um, if any of you know it up there, and he uh, he he had a scholarship to uh, to the University of Lehigh. Didn't end up going to play to play uh, football, but during his football star days, they called him Swivel Hip Strunk because he was a a, a uh, an elusive running back, um, probably a halfback given the times he played. I don't think you were allowed to be something fancy like a running back in those days. And as you may have guessed from his nickname, he was capable of turning around at a totally 360 uh, on his waist. So his top and bottom halves could move in different directions. That's correct. He was essentially like a, um, he's essentially like a He-Man figurine. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was unbelievable. People, people, people were totally disgusted. That's gonna, yeah, that's 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 gonna get the job done. I think. <laughs> athletically. I will also say either of my grandfathers would get would give me a good shot. They're both athletes. My my um, maternal grandfather used to slip out the uh, window of the classroom where he attended school, wow. and just go go play baseball or go watch baseball games. Yeah, he would just sneak out. Uh, and then my uh, now, if you you were at my wedding, so you've heard me reference my other grandfather as well, and this aspect of his personality where he he uh, we would go play basketball ball and he would get the ball and stand on the court and, and he would and i was young enough i would believe him when he would say i haven't missed a shot from this spot of the court in 22 years <laughs> they would immediately brick and like take a step and be like i haven't missed a shot from this spot in 35 years and he would shoot and miss again and i would be like young and impressionable and just be like grab stop taking shots you're ruining your legacy this like, is the worst day of your life <laughs> if you don't if you stop shooting you won't miss like come on <laughs> And if you stop shooting, you won't miss is a philosophy I've carried into my uh, career in writing. So that's uh, that explains that. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Well, 
all winter long. Keep going to billypen.com slash Hidden Season for new episodes of Hidden Season with John Stolnes, Liz Rocher, and myself, Justin Clue. And for more episodes of The Dirty Inning, like this one with Trevor Strunk and myself, become a patron at patreon.com slash Hidden Season, and you'll get to enjoy that all winter long as well. Wow. From from all of us here at Hidden Season, we hope you have a warm and comfortable holiday weekend. It's a rough world out there, and the moments we can spend with people we love are precious. So hopefully wherever you're listening, you're where you want to be. Thank you for listening. From WHYY and Billy Penn, this has been Hidden Season.